Well, the, uh, the longer I live, the more it seems to me that, that Christianity is coming under attack. It's coming under attack. I don't mean that it's coming under attack by militant forces, at least not here in Australia, but coming under attack nonetheless. It seems to me that there are a whole army of people out there who would love to see Christianity annihilated from the face of the earth. But the weapons that they use aren't bombs or bullets. Uh, no, the weapons that I'm talking about are the weapons of ridicule and scorn. Uh, maybe you've noticed the same thing. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you picked up a newspaper and read something that was actually positive about Christianity? Now, it's not like that, is it? Uh, the editorials of newspapers, they're filled with derision. Uh, the letters to the editor, they're filled with mocking contempt when it comes to matters of Christianity. It seems that even our popular culture has taken up the cause against Christianity. And so you watch television dramas and uh, there you see on them the Christian who is always parodied as the weak, meddling, hypocritical loony. If there, is a, if there is a serial killer out there to be caught, well, look no further than the religious nutter. Even, even some of our students, our university students here at church, I hear stories for, from them um, of uh, their lecturers using their classes to lampoon Christianity, uh, using their classes to, to mock anybody who would dare say that they were a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm even starting to hear that sort of thing happening in the school classroom too. Think about the internet for a moment. Uh, the internet with, with all those forums uh, filled with hateful messages about Christianity. Maybe you've seen them. Have you seen them? Uh, the, the internet forums with derogatory marks all about us. Derogatory remarks. There's even some people today who have made it a, prof a profession to mock Christians and Christianity. Uh, the likes of Richard Dawkins, uh, the likes of Christopher Hitchens, men who have uh, attracted a swathe of disciples, all now ready to follow them in their assault on Christianity. Yeah, real or imagined, it seems to me that Christianity is increasingly coming under attack in our society, that the weapons of choice are ridicule and scorn. And it seems to me that we Christians have become something of a laughing stock. And it seems to me that the end result of all of this is that it can leave us Christians feeling, well, overwhelmed and, and, and beaten down and, and humiliated and, and even ashamed for our faith. In fact, I think that it could even leave some of us wondering whether we're really on the right side or not at all. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, despite my feelings that Christianity is increasingly coming under attack in our society, the fact is God's people have always come under attack. And one place that that is abundantly clear is in the book of Judges. Now, last week we began to look at this book of Judges. And you might remember that we saw the beginning of a downward spiral, a downward spiral that would take us to the end of the book of Judges. Do you remember the cycle we saw last week? It started with the Israelites disobeying God, God's people disobeying God. And then it was followed by God punishing the Israelites, usually by um, raising up a foreign power to attack them. 
followed by God then uh, having mercy on the Israelites and raising up for them a, a deliverer, a, a rescuer, known as a judge, followed by the Israelites then obeying God for a period of time, generally for as long as that judge was alive. And then that whole thing going over and over and over again in a crazy sin cycle and, 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 a, and a downward spiral. Well, today we actually get to hear the stories of the first three judges. We've got to hear their stories. And if you don't already have this book open up in front of you, can I encourage you to turn with me there now? Judges chapter 3. You can find it on page 171 of the small print or 375 of the large print Bibles. Judges chapter 3. The first judge that we're going to learn about this evening is a man by the name of Othniel. Othniel. Now, he was needed to save the Israelites because he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Sorry, because the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Instead of loving and serving God only, well, the Israelites, they worshipped the false gods of their pagan neighbours. They started worshipping the Baals and the Asherahs. Of course, this made God angry. And so he punished the Israelites. He punished them by giving them are giving power to a foreign king, a king by the name of Cushan Rishathaim. He attacked the Israelites, overpowered them, and made them his subjects. Read with me from Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim. That's easy for you to say. To whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Okay, now here's the thing. That king, the, the king with the name, Cushan Rishathaim, do you know what that name means? Well, it actually means double wickedness. Okay, double wickedness. This is king wickedness, wickedness. That's his name. Uh, now, I've got a funny feeling that that is probably not the name uh, that his mum and dad gave to him when he was born. Um, I mean, could you imagine that? They're in the maternity ward and, you know, from this point forth he shall be called Wickedness. <laughs> and his middle name shall be Wickedness also. <laughs> Our little Wickedness, Wickedness. Now, I don't think that's quite how it happened. Actually, I think what's going on here is this is, this is a mocking nickname that has been given to the king by the Israelites. It's a, a caricature name, okay? I think of him as King Baddy Baddy, all right? King Baddy Baddy. And now God has used him to punish the Israelites. On the positive side, this punishment has actually helped the Israelites see the folly of their way. And so they cry out to the Lord for help. God hears their cries and so he raises up for them a judge, Othniel, to take on the king. It should be pointed out that uh, the name of Othniel actually has a meaning too. It means God's strength, God's strength. And so what we really have here is a bout between King Baddy Baddy and God. All right, well, I wonder who's going to win. Shall we find out? Read with me from verse 9, verse 9. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, 
So he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. All right, well, no buts about it here, is there? There's a clear winner here, and that is, of course, God. Uh, king, wickedness, wickedness. Well, he's no match for God's strength. So now, this king is just the stuff of caricature. This king, he is nothing but a joke. He is King Baddy Baddy, and now he's deady dead. And so you see, by the time God's judge is finished with God's enemies, well, they all end up a laughing stock. And the result is, at the end, Israel live at peace for the next 40 years. Why only 40 years, you ask? Well, it's sad to say, but once again, the Israelites get onto the sin cycle. They sin against the Lord. And so again, God punishes them. Once again, they cry out to God. And once again, God raises up for them a deliverer. This time, a left-handed judge, a left-handed man by the name of Ehud. This time, God uses the foreign Moabite people to punish Israel. And they're led by King Eglon. What do we know about King Eglon? Uh, well, uh, we know, how can I put this politely? Uh, we know that he is uh, a big-boned man, okay? Uh, he is a robust man. Uh, uh, we know he, he's the sort of man that would have benefited greatly from Chandra's diet club, okay? All right, there is no nice way to put this. He was huge. He was massive. He was enormous. We're talking more rolls than a baker's delight here, okay? He was huge. You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, the story goes that Ehud visits King Eglon with a pretense of bringing him tribute on behalf of the Israelites. Uh, a tribute being, you know, like a gift to demonstrate their servitude. But before Ehud visits the king, he makes the most of his left-handedness. And what he does is he, is he straps a dagger to the inside of his right thigh. Okay? Now, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Um, maybe the Moabite bodyguards only frisked left legs. I'm not really sure why such a big thing is made of the fact that he's left-handed and it's strapped to his right leg. I'm not sure. But anyway, Ehud, he manages to get to the king and he manages to tell the king that he has a secret message for him. This, of course, piques the king's curiosity. And so the king sends all of his attendants away, all of his bodyguards, and, and there he is, left all alone with Ehud. Anyway, look, I can't tell this story any better than the Bible itself does. So let's read it together, shall we? From uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Um, every 10-year-old boy's favourite Bible story. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. 
He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. So Ehud gave King Eglon a message from the Lord and King Eglon, it seems, got the point. Oh, come on, people. That was, that was better. Oh, come on. I don't know why I bother. <laughs> you be quiet. Anyway, so there we have King Eglon dead on the floor. Edlo- uh, meanwhile, Ehud makes his escape, locking the doors before he does. Then King Eglon's attendants come along and they find that the doors are locked. And, and they figure that the king is, well, otherwise occupied. Read with me from verse 23. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine the conversation that took place between those attendants as they were outside those locked doors? Um, You know, like, gee, he's taking a while in there, isn't he? Yeah, what did he have for lunch? (laughs) Maybe you should go in and check on him. No, maybe you should go in and check on him. And then, of course, the complete and utter horror to go in there and find their king dead on the floor. Meanwhile, Ehud goes back to the Israelites, hopefully after washing his hands, and then he tells them what's happened. And then he leads them into battle against the Moabites. And by the end, there are 10,000 Moabites who are slain. And rather than Israel being subject to Moab, well, now at the end of this saga, now it's reversed. Now Moab is subject to Israel. Read with me from verse 26, verse 26. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. It's really, it really is quite hard to read this story, isn't it, without at least a bit of a snigger, um, without a bit of a, a giggle, without laughing at what's going on here. You know why? 
Well, I think it's because we're supposed to laugh as we read this story. I mean, think about it. Here is a, an evil king. Here is a powerful oppressor. Here is a man who has dared mock God by messing with his people. But again, by the time God's judge is finished with him, he's a laughing stock. A laughing stock. Which brings us to the third and final judge that we're going to be looking at this evening, a bloke by the name of Shamgar. Now, we're not explicitly told here that the Israelites did evil again in the eyes of the Lord, nor are we told explicitly that God was punishing them here. I think that's all kind of assumed by this point. But we are told that this time it was the Philistines who were the problem. You might remember the Philistines, the evil Philistines. They were always a bit of a problem for the Israelites. And time and time again, they would come against God's people and attack them. But in this story... We're told of how Shamgar, the Israelite, took down 600 Philistines, killed them all. And he, he did it not, not on a chariot. He didn't do it with a sword. Uh, he didn't do it leading an army, no. We're told that he single-handedly killed 600 Philistines with nothing more than an ox goad. Read with me this final verse, verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Now, do you know what an ox goad is? Do you know what an ox goad is? I didn't. Um, so I googled it. And here's a picture of an ox goad. An ox goad, it's a, it's a long stick with a pointy bit on the end, okay, that you use to, to get cattle moving. Okay, it's a cattle prod. It's a poker. It's a, it's a stick. And here we have in this story, Shamgar the Israelite slaughtering 600 Philistines with a poker, okay, with a stick. Again, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny because it's meant to be, because by all human standards, one man is no match for 600, especially when that one man is armed with nothing more than a... <laughs> a poker. This is a humiliating defeat for the Philistines. And once again, we see that by the time God's judge is finished with his enemies, they're made a laughing stock. But the thing is, that's the way that it always is with God's judges. Think about it. Think about it. Think of the way King Kushan Rishathaim, the baddie, baddie king, in the end, a laughing stock. King Eglon, king of Plump, the king who died while his attendants thought he was on the loo. In the end, a laughingstock. The Philistines, 600 of whom were killed by a single man with a poker. In the end, a laughingstock. That's always the way that it is with God, God's enemies. And friends, I think that is a really, really important truth for us to remember here tonight as we do see Christianity coming under attack in our society today. As today we come under that barrage of ridicule and scorn and contempt and mockery for our faith. You know, in the newspapers, on the television, on the internet, in the lecture theatres, even from those professional mockers. As today we come under attack as Christians as, and as we begin to feel overwhelmed and beaten down 
and humiliated and ashamed. And as we perhaps even begin to wonder whether we're on the right side or not. As all this happens today, friends, we need to remember that the day is coming when all those who mock God by messing with his people will be made a laughing stock. How can I be so sure? How can I be so sure about that? Well, because, friends, we know that God has raised up for us a judge today also, don't we? We know that he has raised up for us our own rescuer, our own deliverer. We know, we know that his name isn't Othniel or Ehud or Shamgar. No, we know what his name is, don't we? His name is Jesus Christ, the one who faced the ultimate scorn of God's enemies, the one who faced the ultimate humiliation at the cross, and yet the one who turned that ultimate scorn and humiliation into the ultimate victory by rising to life again. Yes, Jesus Christ, the eternal judge, the one who lives forever, our deliverer, and the one who will one day return from heaven and have his final victory over all of God's enemies. The one who will have the last laugh. Friends, do you know what Jesus is going to do to all of God's enemies when he returns? Do you know what he's going to do to all of God's enemies when he returns from heaven? Do you know? I'll show you. This is it. This is it. This is their end. Okay? A footstool. A feet seat. A pouffet, as my grandparents would have called it. This is their end. This is the end for all God's enemies. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, when Jesus offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. See, friends, this is the end for all those who dare mock the living God by messing with us, his people. They're turned into Jesus' footstool. And let's face it, it's not the most noble piece of furniture in the house, is it? But as we've seen today, by the time God's judge is finished with his enemies, they always end up a laughing stock. And that will definitely be the case when Jesus returns from heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, it actually raises a whole bunch of questions for me about how I live in a world where there are God's enemies in the here and now, as I wait for Jesus to return. Questions about, you know, what do I do while I'm waiting for him to return? You know, should we Christians all walk around with, with daggers strapped to our inside thighs? Next time we hear somebody mocking Christianity, we pull it out, blah, into their guts. Do we all go down to Bunnings tomorrow and buy a big plank of wood and make for ourselves an ox goad? What do we do while we're waiting for Jesus to return? What should we do? Well, we should do whatever our judge, Jesus, tells us to do. 
And we find out exactly what he wants from us in the teaching of the New Testament. And so to finish this evening, what I want to do is leave you with five things that you, as a Christian, need to remember as you wait for Jesus to return from heaven and bring in his final victory. Okay, five things, very, very quickly. The first one is this. Don't be frightened. Okay, don't be frightened. Friend, the fact is when people mock you and ridicule you for being a Christian, you have no reason to be frightened, no reason to be intimidated. Friend, you know how the battle ends. You know who has the last laugh. You know you are on the winning side, so no, don't be frightened. And whatever you do, whatever you do, don't go swapping teams. No way. As we learnt just a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter 1, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So no, don't be frightened. That's the first thing. Secondly, secondly, we need to remember who the real enemy is. Okay, we need to remember who the real enemy is. We need to remember that our fight is not ultimately with people. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. You see, friend, the truth is that the people out there today who rage against Christianity, although they are fully responsible for their actions, they are ultimately under the control of Satan. They are in bondage to him. You keep that in mind and suddenly you realise that no, no, we don't, we don't fight against flesh and blood. And suddenly we also realise that no, no, our weapons are not daggers or ox goads. Well, if not, then what are our weapons? Well, that's point number three. Point number three, we need to remember that our weapons are the word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer. Again, in Ephesians chapter 6, we read, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the Bible, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. You see, friends, telling our enemies all about Jesus Christ and praying for them is much, 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 much more effective than bombs or bullets, okay? And so the next time you receive insults from enemies telling you to shut up about Jesus, well, the last thing you're going to do is shut up about Jesus. Now, you've got to talk about him all the more, in a winsome way, of course. And rather than cursing our enemies, we're going to pray for them. That, that, that these are our weapons. Of course, that doesn't come very naturally for us, does it? I mean, our natural human response when somebody humiliates us is, of course, to what? Humiliate them. You, to, to, find, you know, to try and get revenge on them. But that's not what our judge taught us. Now, what did he teach us? Well, that's point number four. He taught us to love our enemies. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, we're instructed to go out of our way to love our enemies. We're told, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Yeah, we're told to love our enemies. We're told to overcome evil with good. And number five, the final thing this evening, the final thing that we need to remember as we come in contact with those who would mock us for our faith, the final thing we need to remember is that we Christians need to remain humble. We need to remain humble. Christian, you must never fill yourselves, fill yourself with pride as you compare yourself to the enemies of God out there. You should never have the response of saying to, to your enemies, ah, you're going to be a footstool. No. Rather, you ought to remember that once upon a time, you too were God's enemy. And you ought to remember that once upon a time, you too were destined to be a footstool. The only difference is that Jesus rescued you. As it says in Colossians chapter 1, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Christian, keep that in mind and suddenly you'll re realise that the only real difference between you and the enemies of God that are out there today is the sheer, the overwhelming and the totally, totally wonderful mercy of God. Well, let's come before our God now in prayer, shall we? And, and let's pray that he'll help us to live this way as we wait for Jesus to return from heaven to bring in his final victory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we want to praise you this evening uh, for that salvation that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that he has come as our deliverer. We want to thank you that at the cross, he showed all of his enemies who really has the true power. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to live always with Jesus as our King. Help us, Father, as we face ridicule and scorn. Help us not to be frightened. Help us to remember the true fate of all those who oppose you. And Father, we pray for all of those who do come against us in this way. Help us to love them, even when that's hard. And help us to pray for them and to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, please help us to be humble as we remember all that you've done for us. And please, please, Father, have mercy on the society around us. Father, please show them the folly of trying to take you on. And please teach them this before it's too late. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.